my neighborhood, and sometimes I can hear her practicing. But Cindy, I don't remember hearing you yet this summer. Rick? <laughs> Rick gets to hear this several times a week, don't you? I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. I've been teaching through the book of Colossians, the letter of Paul to the church at Colossae. And we're, we're going to finish this week. And so some of you are wondering, what in the world will we do next week? Well, the Bible has 66 books in it, so we're going to do another one. You have to come and find out. And if you're interested, you can listen on our website or on iTunes to the full message. But this is the conclusion. This is Paul's final words. This is Paul who writes like a loving father to children who are children in the faith who most of them he had never met. Paul had never, as far as we know, had never been to Colossae. He had gotten word from Epaphras who had brought news from Colossae about a thousand miles away. We believe by this point Paul's in a Roman prison cell. And there's people with him. Timothy's with him. Luke, the physician's with him. Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, is with him. And you'll see some of those names if you read the full chapter. But prayer, importance of prayer and conduct and encouragement. That's kind of how Paul closes this letter. He, he closes it by calling them to prayer. He calls them to the way they live their life. And he's speaking to new believers who probably were a little discouraged by the fact he's in a Roman prison cell. And they're wondering if they're going to be next. And so he writes a word of encouragement to them. Prayer. A pastor wrote a book called Prayers from Children. I've got to read you a few of these, just a few. I love hearing eight, nine, ten-year-olds. What are they thinking? What are they praying? They take prayer seriously, but listen to a few. Dear Pastor, I know God loves me, but I wish he would give me an A on my report card so that I could be sure. <laughs> Dear Pastor, could you say a special blessing for my Aunt Beatrice? She's been looking for a husband for 12 years and still hasn't found one. <laughs> Dear Pastor, thank you for your sermon on Sunday. I will write more when my mother explains to me what she said. <laughs> Dear Pastor, we say grace every night before we eat dinner, even when we have leftovers from the night before. Last one. Dear Pastor, I say my prayer before I eat my supper, but my mother still makes me finish my spinach and drink my milk. That's meant to be funny. What Paul writes about is incredibly important and serious. Paul's writing to a group of people that he loved dearly. He even tells them, share this letter with the other church. And he tells them, read the letter I wrote to the, that church when it comes to you. Prayer. This last week, I had the opportunity to visit a mentor of mine who is bedridden at this time. And I went to pray for him. But as I finished my prayer, he reached up, grabbed my hand, and prayed for me. And I was blown away. Yes, in my life, he's been like the Apostle Paul. But to hear the prayer of this man who, he may get back out of that bed and walk, because that's my prayer. But selfishly, I prayed that. But it may be that he's ultimately healed by going to see his Lord and Savior soon. And so I think about the Apostle Paul knowing he's in prison, knowing that his life can't live, he won't live much longer after this letter. And I'm thinking the same thing about a guy that I dearly love who prayed for me this past week. So let's read the passage, Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 through 9, and then I'm going to read verse 18 just to close it out. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. 
praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up, us, up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been in prison, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how to, you should respond to each person. As to all my affairs, Tuchicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant, and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Then verse 18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Paul, first thing he says, he calls them to prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer. Be earnest towards. Be diligent. Be constantly in prayer. It implies persistence and fervor. Keep in mind, he's writing to fairly new believers. Most of them are Gentiles. Yes, there are some Jewish converts in the church. We talked about that earlier in Colossians. But I wonder what part in their life prayer had even played. So he's teaching them, and they're learning about prayer, and he says, be devoted to it. Don't let prayer be something flippant that you tack on at the end of the day, that you only pray over a meal, but be fervent, be devoted to your prayer life, and keep alert in it. Literally, keep awake. Keep alert in your prayer life. In other words, watch what's going on around you. That will inform you on what you need to pray. Anybody ever struggle? Don't raise your hand. Anybody ever struggle with prayer? I do. I think it's one of the hardest disciplines, and why is that? There's nothing hard about it. You bow your head, you get alone, or you can pray with other people, and you talk to the God of the universe. Why don't we do it more? I think it's because we have a real enemy, the, the devil, who doesn't want us to connect with God through prayer. So when Paul says devote yourselves to prayer, keep alert as you pray, be intentional. Don't fall asleep in prayer. If you wait to the end of the day when you're slap worn out and you thought, you know what, I hadn't prayed today, I think I'll throw up a prayer, you're going to be kind of like the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember what happened with them? Jesus takes his disciples. He leaves some of them out closer to the entrance. But he takes three, Peter, James, and John. And he says to them, keep alert and pray. He goes in a little further into the garden. And when he comes back to check on them, and he does it more than one time, what's happened? They're asleep. I got permission to share this story with you, but my wife and I, when we first got married, we would end every day in prayer. We'd get into bed. Before we'd turn the light off, the last thing we'd do is pray. One day it'd be my turn. The next day it'd be her turn. And we had been in that pattern for a while. And one night it was her turn to pray. And she started praying this prayer, and there was this long pause. I thought, man, she's really, something spiritual is going on here. She's having a Holy Ghost moment. This is exciting. I can't wait to hear what she says next. But the pause got longer, and then she started snoring. So I woke her up, made her finish her prayer. But that could happen to you if you wait until the last thing of the day. Make prayer something that is unceasing. Make prayer that you have a God consciousness throughout the day. To, to not cease in prayer doesn't mean you stay on your knees 24 hours a day, but it means as you go about your day, you constantly think about the Lord. And so it's, it's natural to talk to him as you go about your day. So Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer, keep alert in it, but have an attitude of thanksgiving. 
Have an attitude of gratitude, one that you've, you're praying and you're saying, God, thank you for answer prayer. Part of your prayer life ought to be about thanking God for answer prayer. And sometimes the answer to your prayer is no. Thank God for that too. Sometimes it's yes. Sometimes it's wait. Thank God for answer prayer. Thank God that you're allowed into the throne room of heaven, according to Hebrews chapter 4. You can come boldly before the throne of grace to receive mercy and help in time of need. Isn't that awesome that God allows us to talk to him and he hears our prayer and he answers our prayer? So be intentional. Pray for your salvation. Thank him for that. Thank him for his presence in your life, his promises. Thank him for answered prayer. Not just a selfish list. I, I want to give you a practical application, and there's a lot of these. I'm not going to use all of them. Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote a book, 15 Keys to Effective Prayer. I'm not going to read all 15 of them. But I'm going to walk through just a few. First, be specific in your prayers. I think sometimes we pray for people and we say, bless Tom, bless Jane, bless this person. And that's fine. But I wonder what we mean by that prayer. Pray specifically for people. If you know specific prayer needs, pray specifically. Ask God for things. God, would you raise this person up? Would you restore their health? Would you bless them financially? Would you help find a job for them? Would you help them find that Husband they've been looking for for 12 years. Pray specifically because the more specifically you pray, the easier it is to recognize the answer to the prayer. And I've done that before. I have two children or a child and a daughter-in-law that live out in Yuma. And sometimes I do say, Lord, bless them. And, and I don't get specific about that. Well, how do I know if the prayer got answered? Be more specific. It blows me away that I, I have one guy that prays for me regularly every Tuesday. He doesn't call me anymore every Tuesday, but he'll either text me or call me regularly and say, I prayed for you with two other guys this morning, and here's what I prayed. And it amazes me how he knew what to pray for because I hadn't given him a list of prayer requests. But be specific in your prayers. Pray in faith. James says to ask God in, in verse 5 of, James, of chapter 1, he says, If you lack wisdom, ask from God who gives generously and without reproach. And then he says, but ask in faith. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the waves. Pray in faith, believing that God can answer prayer. Because the longer you walk with Christ, the more you pray, the more you realize God is able to do things exceedingly abundantly beyond anything I could ask or think. Prayer becomes an important, vital part of your life. And so when you ask God, you ask a God that you know is powerful enough to answer prayer. So pray in faith. Fight distractions that keep you from prayer. Listen, the enemy will try to keep you busy. If he can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. And he'll try to distract you. He'll even try to distract you in prayer. How do you know the distractions from the enemy and not maybe from God? I think sometimes we come to God in prayer and we bow our heads and we do all the talking. And maybe God's trying to tell us something. So here's what I've learned. If you're praying, have a notebook with you. And if God puts somebody's name on your mind... Or God puts a circumstance or situation on your mind, write it down. Because I found out that a, sharp pen, a dull pencil is better than a sharp mind. I may forget what God is trying to tell me, but if I write it down, I can focus back on the prayer at hand. And it could be that it is a distraction sent by the enemy. Write it down and get back to effective prayer. So guard distractions. Another way you guard distractions is to pray where you're not going to get distracted. Sometimes it helps to close your eyes, but you don't have to close your eyes to pray. One reason I close my eyes is it does kind of block out the distraction. Cut the TV off. Cut the radio off. Cut the Internet off. 
pray scripture, the promises of God. If you're having a problem starting prayer, go to the book of Psalms and, and use some of the Psalms. Most of them are written by King David and personalize them. Instead of praying like it's David praying, pray like it's you praying and say, God, I'm asking this from you. Pray scripture. Don't give up in prayer. Pray without ceasing. How do we know when it's time to quit praying? When God's answered the prayer or when God's revealed to you, you don't need to pray for that anymore. One of my experiences with my own children, we would call them in our bedroom as they were young children and even into their teenage years, and we'd close every day with prayer. And we'd take prayer requests, and somebody would lead the prayer. I was working on my doctoral project, and I, it took me longer than it should have. It was hard. And so every night we're praying for that. And my son, Robbie, finally said, why don't you put a little effort into it? In other words, Robbie thought, once you've prayed... God already knows it's a request, then you do the rest. And, and he's got, there's some truth in that, put some effort into it. But you keep praying because it may be that God, even through your prayer, changes your heart, changes your direction, changes the circumstances. So pray and keep praying until God tells you to quit praying. And one way you know to quit praying is that the prayer is answered, and now your prayer is, God, thank you for the answer to prayer. Regularly confess your sins. Don't let things pile up that distance you from God. God hasn't left you, but here's what sin will do to you. It'll make you want to run from God. How do I know that? Because I know it's true in my life. But you go all the way back to the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? They hid from God. God comes through the garden, and I don't think he was screaming. I think he's saying, Adam, where are you? Well, I'm over here. Don't try to play hide-and-go-seek with God. It's kind of like my youngest son when we play hide-and-seek with him. Daddy, count to 100 and come look for me. Well, he didn't know his numbers. I'm sure not going to count all the way to 100, but I start out 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 99, 100. He would jump out, here I am. And I thought, that's really not the way hide-and-go-seek is to be played, but that's the way you ought to play it with you and God. Don't put distance between you and God. So come before God and say, God, please forgive me because he promises he will. Don't worry about praying eloquent prayers. I think some people think you've got to pray in King James English or you've got to pray at a certain volume. You've got to use some these and thous and some thys. If that's not part of your regular conversation, it doesn't need to be part of your conversation with God. Talk to God like you would a friend with respect, certainly. I was visiting a family in the hospital who had a young child who had chicken pox. And it was so bad he had chicken pox in his eyes and he had not slept. And they finally got him to sleep. Well, a pastor was in there, and he, he said, let's go to the Lord in prayer. And I'd heard him talk. He used language in his prayer that I thought, that's not the way you talk. But he also used volume. I thought, we're on like the third floor of a seventh-floor hospital. You don't have to pray so loud that it breaks through the, the barrier of all these floors. Pray to God as you would talk to somebody that's sitting right next to you with your language, with your volume. Don't have to use eloquent language. What about when you don't feel like praying? When you don't feel like praying, ask for help. Who do we ask for help from? A God. It's okay to be honest with God and say, God, I know I need to pray, but I don't even feel like praying right now. I don't even know how to express in words what I'm thinking right now. And we have a promise the Holy Spirit intercedes with us, for us, with groanings too deep for words. We have a promise from 1 John 2 that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, constantly interceding on our behalf. So if you don't feel like praying, tell God that. It's okay. And last, pray big prayers. Don't just pray small prayers that you can answer. Because when you pray big prayers, you're praying, praying things that you know. And you may even say, God, if you don't come through here, 
we're all sunk. I'm in trouble. I'm so far, far out on the limb, if you don't catch me, I'm going to fall and hurt myself. So pray big prayers. Allow God to put on your heart things that are way bigger than you, way bigger than anybody you know, that the only person that can answer that prayer is God, and God will get the credit for it. So pray big prayers. So devote yourselves to prayer. Keep alert in it. And have an attitude of thanksgiving. And then Paul says, here's what I want you praying for me. Pray at the same time for us as well. So Paul's saying, pray for me. Pray for the people with me. For Timothy, who was part of the greeting at the beginning of the letter. And isn't it interesting? Paul says, pray that God will open up a door for the word. Paul is in prison. Praying that God would give him opportunity to share Christ with people. One of the people he's going to mention in a few minutes is Onesimus, who's a runaway slave. He writes the book of Philemon to Philemon at Colossae to tell him about Onesimus, who's now a brother. And we'll talk about him here in a minute. But Paul didn't enter the prison and say, well, my ministry's over. Paul said, whatever circumstances I'm in, I'm going to continue to give praise to God. I'm going to continue to look for opportunities. How would you like to be a Roman jailer that's chained to Paul that hears him talk about God nonstop, 24 hours a day. I wonder how many Roman jailers were impacted for the cause of Christ because they were sitting next to Paul who was looking for opportunities not to get out of jail, but to minister as long as he was in jail. So Paul says, pray for us that God would open up opportunity for us and that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, and that's why I'm in prison. The mystery of Christ is something that was hidden in the Old Testament, but it's been revealed in Christ. It's the gospel. It's the good news. When the angels appeared to the shepherds on the hillside, they said, We have tidings of great joy and great news, for unto us a Savior has been born. That's what the message that Paul shared was. Paul said, Look for open opportunities. Pray that we'd have open opportunities. And pray that I would speak as I ought to speak, for that's why I'm in prison. Paul was in prison because he was preaching the gospel and he would not shut up. And when they told him to be quiet, he said, well, whether I'm quiet or not, that's your problem. But I can't stop talking about what God's done in my life. And he says that I may make it clear the way I ought to speak. Paul was compelled to preach the gospel, but he also wanted to use God-ordained methodology. And let me tell you a couple things that Paul didn't do. One, he didn't promise that the gospel is a source of earthly comfort. You hear some preachers pray that, hey, or preach that. Listen, if you come to faith in Christ, you're going to have your best life now. You're going to be blessed with a car. You're going to be blessed with wealth. Jesus said, I don't even have a place to lay my head. Jesus was persecuted when he was on earth. Paul was not living the good life. Paul was in prison. So don't lie to people and tell them if you come to faith in Christ, everything on earth is going to be hunky-dory and comfortable. He didn't come to make you comfortable. He came to make you comforters, and he does comfort you. The second thing Paul didn't do is he didn't manipulate people or force them. It wasn't purely emotional. Listen, the gospel message is emotional. Coming to faith in Christ, there may be emotion attached to that, but if it's purely emotion, it's like the seed that, we, that Jesus tells the parable about of the sower. It's, it falls among soil that, yeah, you may see fruit that looks really good, but there's no depth of soil. It's not real. It's just pure emotion. So Paul issues a call to prayer. Secondly, a call to conduct. Paul's interested and concerned with how they're going to live their lives. So he says, conduct yourselves. And then he gives three things about how they're conducting themselves. So he says, your daily walk should attract non-believers to Christ. Conduct yourselves in Colossae, in the church and outside of the church, in such a way that it will draw people to you, to Jesus. Not to you, but to Jesus. Let me ask this question. Don't answer out loud. 
If somebody followed you around, would they get closer to Christ or further away? I haven't seen it because I haven't been there in a year or two, but down at the arcade in Garden City, there's mirrors that you know are curved, and you get weird, distorted images. If I stand it just the right way, I lose a lot of weight. The problem is I'm now 10 feet tall, and my teeth are about this long. Those are meant to be funny, but listen, our life, the way we live our life, shouldn't give people a distorted image of Christ. Somebody ought to be able to follow me, and by following me, get closer to Christ. And the same thing's true for you. So Paul says, conduct yourself in such a way that wisdom toward outsiders, godly insight from him toward outsiders. What's the source of wisdom? Well, it comes from God. Just a few verses. These are on the screen. Proverbs 9, 10. If you're wondering, where did I get wisdom from? Well, first, you get wisdom from the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So you want wisdom? Have what, what does fear mean? It doesn't mean fear that makes you run from God. It means fear that makes you respect God. It means reverence for God. So Paul says, conduct yourselves with outsiders, with wisdom. How else do we get wisdom? Prayer. I already quoted the verse, but James 1, 5. If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask from God who gives generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So if you're sitting here today and you think, how can I conduct myself with wisdom toward outsiders? Where's wisdom going to come from? It comes from God. Ask. And as a child of God, you can ask, and he's promised that he'll deliver. It comes from Bible study. This is part of Colossians, the letter that we've already looked at. But chapter 3, verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So Bible study. You will get the wisdom of God by reading the Word of God. So fear the Lord, prayer, Bible study, and then also in Colossians 1, 28, godly instruction. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. So Paul says, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, but also making the most of every opportunity. If you're praying that God would do what Paul prayed, and that is open the door for the gospel ministry, for the gospel message, then take opportunity when it comes along. If you talk to somebody that's struggling, ask them, can I pray for you? It may not be an opportunity for you to share the gospel. It may just be they need to be prayed for, but it's heading them towards understanding who Jesus is. If somebody says to you, you know, there's something different about you. Well, it may be your deodorant. It may be what the clothes you're wearing. But it could be that something's different that has changed in your life because of Jesus Christ. had a conversation with a young lady in Orlando, Florida at a youth conference. And I won't tell you the whole story. But she basically said, I've never been around Christians before. She said, but I've hung out with these girls from this church for the last four days, and they've got something I want. Wouldn't that be great that that would be said about you guys, girls? That somebody followed you around, watched your life, and knew there's something different about you, and it's good, and I want it. Make the most of every opportunity. And let your speech always be flavored with grace, as seasoned with salt. In other words, what comes out of your mouth is not a message of condemnation, but it's a message that points people to Jesus, seasoned with grace. What does grace mean? Grace is what you've received. If you've come to faith in Christ, it's by grace that you're saved. You've received something that you don't deserve. And so when we share the message of the gospel with other people, we're telling them about grace. We're telling them about an offer that God gives of mercy and grace. Mercy is not receiving what you do deserve. Grace is receiving something you don't deserve. It's a gift 
from God. So seasoned with grace, seasoned with salt. That comes from living in God's presence. Salt adds flavor. Salt can be a preservative. But what else does salt do? It can sting. The truth can sting at times, but if you offer that truth with grace, some of you ladies, if you shave your legs and nick yourself and you go out in the ocean, do you get a sting? Guys, take my word for it. Don't go shave your legs. But if you've got a place on you that is the skin's been broken and you get into salt water, they tell us it may be good for you, but it stings. Well, the gospel is good for us, but at times the truth stings. But it doesn't sting because of the language you will use. It stings because the gospel is life-changing message. So Paul says, season with salt so that, this is part of your prayer, so that you will know how you respond to each person. You don't respond to everybody the same way, but you respond to each person as God would lead you. And then last, not only a call to prayer, a call to your conduct, but a call to encouragement. Paul gives the last part of his letter to the people that he's sending them and the people who are there that gives them greetings. So he mentions Tychicus, our beloved brother. He's mentioned five times in the New Testament. I want you to think about what's happened to Paul up to this point. It's been about two years since he was arrested in Jerusalem, and they transferred him to a prison cell in Rome. He's, been, he's had a murder plot on his life by the Jews. They actually tried to kill him. He's been on trial before Felix, Festus, and Agrippa. He's had perils at sea, and Tychicus has been with him every step of the way. He's been a source of comfort to Paul. So Paul is sacrificing by sending him back to them with this letter and several others. And here's how he describes him. He's a beloved brethren. He's a faithful servant, and he's a fellow bondservant. And he's going to bring you information that ultimately is going to encourage your heart. In fact, that's the very purpose I'm sending him to you. Keep in mind, the people Paul's writing to, by and large, are brand new believers. They haven't been Christians that long. And yet they hear one of their leaders is in a Roman prison cell. And that's got to discourage their heart. And Paul says, no, the reason I'm sending him in, when you hear about what's going on here in Rome, you're going to be encouraged. So I'm sending him that he may encourage your heart. And with him, Onesimus. Who is Onesimus? Onesimus was a slave. He was part of the church at Colossae. But when he comes to faith, he, comes, he flees his master, finds Paul, and apparently Paul leads him to Christ and sends him back to Colossae. In fact, the book of Philemon is written to his master, Philemon, and in the church at Colossae. And Paul's saying, hey, treat him right. And if, if he owes you something, put it on my account. Because, by the way, Philemon, you owe me your very life. So Paul is sending Tychicus and Onesimus back to encourage them. Here's how he describes Onesimus. He's a faithful, beloved brother. Brand-new Christian, and yet he's already described as faithful. Brand-new Christian, he's already described as beloved. Brand-new Christian, he's already a brother. Because the day he trusted Christ as his Lord and Savior, he became a brother of the Apostle Paul. And he's one of your number. What does that mean? He's part of you. He's from you. He's from Colossae. Welcome him back. And he, they're going to inform you about the whole situation here. And then Paul takes the pen himself. A lot of scholars think Timothy probably wrote Paul's dictation. He had what's called an amanuensis. And we're not sure who they, that person is in all the letters. 
But a lot of scholars think because of Paul's eyesight, he didn't write real well. In fact, in Galatians, he takes the pen because he's steaming and says, see with what large letters I'm writing. That's probably because he couldn't see well, so he had to write with large letters. But Paul takes the, le- the pen, and it, the normal thing, if you had somebody that you're dictating to, you just say, okay, close that out, bring greetings, and that would be their job to close it out. But Paul takes the pen himself, and here's what he says with his own hand. Remember my imprisonment. I never see Paul say, come get me out of jail. But Paul says, pray for me in my imprisonment. And he's already indicated what they're to pray for him. Pray that doors would be open and that I'd know how and when to speak what I need to speak. Paul saw prison as an opportunity to share the gospel. Remember my imprisonment. And the last thing he says is, grace be with you. He ends the letter the same way he started the letter. Paul's saying, I'm praying for you, and here's my closing thought for you, and that is grace. If you've received Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've received something you didn't deserve, you've received grace. And Paul prays that for the Christians at Colossae. Let's pray together.